Welcome to the second season of the History of European Theatre podcast, The Theatre of Rome. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 26, From Greek to Roman, Part 2. Last time, I introduced the Romans with a quick run through the Etruscans, the early Republic, the beginnings of theatre in Rome and the development of the temporary stage. I concluded Part 1 with examples of lavish but still temporary stages that were built, used and removed as part of the celebrations in 145 and 150 BCE, respectively. To start the second part of this introduction, I'm going to step back for a moment as I need to introduce the first personality of the theatre that we have some details for. Livius Andronicus appears on the scene about 284 BCE and is now considered to be the father of Roman drama. He was born in the Greek town of Tarentum, that's modern Tarento, situated at the top of the heel of Italy, so in an area that would have still retained much Greek influence in spite of the Roman occupation there, which began in 272 BCE, only about 12 years before his birth. His hometown was said to be theatre-mad. The story goes that in 282 BCE, Roman envoys arrived in the port town while the citizens were celebrating a festival in the theatre. They were all very drunk and attacked the strange ship without worrying to find out who was on board. When later envoys addressed them in the theatre, presumably extolling the benefits of Roman rule, the crowd laughed at the strange accented Greek spoken by their visitors and the odd clothes they wore. Perhaps they were so used to seeing comedy in the theatre they couldn't help themselves, but their laughter didn't endear them to the Romans, who soon resorted to sending troops into the area. The citizens soon sought out the assistance of the Greek king Pyrrhus of Epirus, which didn't go exactly as planned as the first thing he did was to close the theatre and other entertainments so the locals would take the Roman threat seriously. Many thought that this was worse than the prospect of becoming vassals of Rome and promptly left the city. It's a story that illustrates the expansion of Rome into the Hellenised world, and this too was changing Roman society. With the expansion of empire came an expansion in trade and foreigners coming to the city as workers, traders and slaves. Greek was probably as commonly spoken as Latin, and Livius Andronicus was just part of an uptake and blending of Greek culture. Horace was writing a couple of centuries later, but noted of this time that as Greece was captured by Rome, she made a slave of her savage master by introducing fine arts to the farmers of Rome. Livius Andronicus was born into this Roman occupation. He was clearly a man with talents and education, but nevertheless came to Rome as a slave. He was purchased by the wealthy Livius family and put to work as a private tutor in the household. He had a gift for languages and seems to have prospered within his position in the family, so much so that at some point he became a freeman by grant of his master. He is now best known for having completed a translation of Homer's Odyssey into Latin Saturnian verse. This is a verse form that we have very little understanding of as not many examples have survived, and of this translation of the Odyssey we only have 46 lines from what was presumably a very lengthy work. This is the first known translation of Homer into Latin, and in its time advanced the literary appreciation and knowledge of Greek in the world of Rome. Scholars have pored over the extant lines to understand this important transition point as best they can, and mostly they come away with admiration for Livius Andronicus, who attempted to stay true to the original work while making some aspects of the tale more acceptable to his Roman audience. The most famous example is where he translates equal to the gods as greatest and the first of rank, 
thereby avoiding potential offence to Romans, who would find the idea of being equal to the gods completely unacceptable. About 240 BCE he was commissioned, and for commissioned we might read ordered, to translate some Greek tragedy and comedy into Latin. The plays were to be presented at the Ludi Romani, the September Games, celebrating Jupiter. He produced the plays and appeared in them, making the presentation in the Greek style, perhaps remembering the plays seen in his hometown. Cicero says that this was his first play, and Livy says he was the first person to abandon the satura, that early form of recited verse with movement that might have related to the satire play, and create a play with a plot. If they're both referring to the adaptation of Greek plays, then it seems neither recognised the Greek origins of the works. In any case, the plays were a success. He seems to have chosen the most accessible of the tragedies, and those with the most thrilling storylines, suggesting that this was a direct appeal to the majority of the audience that was becoming more diverse with the expansion of the city. As we might expect, judging just by the titles, the stories around the Trojan horse, Achilles and Ajax were his choice of subject. He went on to translate many more Greek plays, and to copy and adapt Greek originals became the way of Roman playwrights. This included some comedy, but the titles are more obscure, so it's difficult to know how close to the Greek model of the middle or new comedy they were. There must have been some more examples, as the Romans saw this as a type of theatre, a genre, enough to give it a specific name, Commedia Palliata. Palliata referring to the pallium, the short cloak worn by the actors. We only have some titles and about 60 quotations in later Roman works to go on from his entire output, but they were reported as poetic, with passages of dialogue mixed with lyric sections. It's not clear if a chorus was still in use, but large parts of the plays were for solo actors, presumably Livius Andronicus himself, in many cases. And he was a busy man. As well as the activity for the theatre, the translations, producing and acting, he also ran a school, but there's no further detail about his life other than he died in Rome about 205 BCE. Later writers like Cicero and Horace held him in high regard and acknowledged him as the originator of Latin literature. Part of the success of Livius Andronicus was due to the increasing influence of the Hellenistic world on Rome, but there had been societal changes too. In the 200 years before the end of the First Punic War, Roman society had greatly changed. From the Etruscan period, Rome inherited a social structure based on an all-powerful aristocracy in charge of everyone else, with little distinction between artisans, unskilled labourers and slaves. Within this framework, the family became the central unit in every sense, economic, social and religious. The eldest male was unquestionably the head of the household, with complete power over his direct family, other female relations, slaves and property. The aristocratic family saw a danger in social mobility and over the time firm lines that became rules and eventually laws were drawn up that prevented marriage across the social divide. The aristocrats became the patrician class with membership based strictly on rights of birth. The patricians still valued land ownership as the basis of wealth and held themselves apart from the growing urban population and developing class whose wealth was based on trade and commercial activity. Everyone else was a plebeian as far as the patricians were concerned, but they couldn't completely stop the tide of change. Social distinction was codified in laws that took property into account as well as birth, 
much to the benefit of wealthy plebeians. The plebeians began to find a way into political positions and started to have some influence. And how does all that affect the theatre? Well, now the city elite were not just interested in land and agrarian matters, but finance, trade and eventually the arts. With that growing interest came resistance from the patricians, with the concept of the arts as frivolous and its practitioners as of a moral character developed. The arts may have been acceptable for the occasional entertainment and as part of a religious ceremony, but this attitude curtailed the development of theatre in its own right for an extended period of time. But another episode from the life of Livius Andronicus shows us that Rome could appreciate its artists, at least when their art brought military success. It was the Roman habit at moments of crisis to consult the Sibylline books for guidance. These were a collection of sayings by an oracle acquired by King Tarquin. In 207 BCE, during the Second Punic War, advice was taken from the books that a hymn should be composed and performed throughout the city to bring military success. Livius Andronicus was given the commission, and when an important victory followed, he was honoured by allowing all of his acting and playwriting group to use the Temple of Minerva as a shrine and a meeting place. This also suggests that Rome had adopted the Greek habit of awarding civic honours to thespians. It's important to note that for all the comparisons with Greece and Athens, Rome was not quite the new Athens. Although there were some democratic elements to Roman society, it was never close to the scope of Athenian democracy, and remained under autocratic rule of one form or another throughout its existence. And in respect of theatre particularly, the religious element was always a much lighter influence than in Athens. Roman theatre was always an entertainment first and not embedded with religion in the Greek way. Festivals, games and theatrical performances may have had a veneer of religiosity about them, but it was little more than that, just a veneer. The Roman taste was and would remain for song, dance and comedy, not darkly brooding tragedies. Only a few years after Livius Andronicus made the first moves into plot-driven drama, the record gives us Gnaeus Nivius as the first truly Roman native playwright. He was born about 270 BCE, with his earliest work appearing in about 235 BCE. He continued to write for the next 30 years, despite some significant setbacks. As a young man, he fought in the First Punic War. Between 264 and 261 BCE, this was the first of three wars between Rome and Carthage, now Tunis in North Africa, that Rome would eventually win in 149 BCE. As an ex-soldier, Gnaeus Nivius was a staunch Republican who greatly feared the decline of the Republic, which he believed he was already seeing in progress. After writing epic poetry, he turned his hand to plays on subjects of Roman history, retelling the Romulus and Remus myth about the founding of the city in one play and the victory of Marcus Claudius Marcellus over the Celts in 222 BCE in another. He also made translations of tragedies with the familiar Greek themes. He was said to have stuck closely to the Greek originals, which is probably why he was better regarded for comedies and farce by the later Roman writers. We only have the titles of 30 of his plays and some odd quotations from scripts. These suggest that his plays may have been translations of Aristophanes and perhaps adaptations of otherwise unknown original works in the old and new comedy styles. The extent and breadth of his output are difficult to quantify, but almost certainly some of his works were satiric polemic, which ties in with his use of Greek old comedy. 
We know he got into trouble over some of his criticisms of the Senate, and during the Second Punic War he dared to criticise the general Scipio Africanus, as he saw personal power growing amongst the senatorial class. It seems to have been some criticism of the wealthy and powerful Matelli family that got him into real trouble, though, and his career in the theatre was ended with a spell in prison and then exile to Utica, an ancient Phoenician city in modern-day Tunisia, where he died. Following Gnaeus Nevius, there's something of a cluster of plays and playwrights over the next 150 years. No complete works survive, but scholars believe that over 70 comedies and tragedies can be identified from this period, representative of a much greater output. The lack of material makes us see them as minor writers, but perhaps transitional would be a fairer term. The comedies of Statius Cecilius appear to have been held in particular high regard by Roman commentators. He was born in 219 BCE in Milan, but worked out of Rome. Terence, his near contemporary, reports that his early comedies were not popular, but at the end of his life in 169 BCE, he was honoured and celebrated as a writer who espoused moral virtues through the emotional force of his poetry and intricate plots. He's also attributed with translations of Menander. We have 42 titles and 280 fragmentary lines to go on, but he's quoted often by the likes of Cicero, suggesting that he was popular and well-known, at least among the educated literary set. Another playwright of note from the period is Quintus Ennius, who was said to be a big influence on Terence. He was born in 239 BCE in southern Italy, an area where the native language was Ossian, but he would have been educated in Greek. He served in the Roman army in the Second Punic War and learnt Latin, which, as he put it, gave him three hearts. As I've not referred to it before, I should add here that Ostian was a language spoken in southern Italy. It is seen as a sister language to Latin, but died out of common use at about 100 CE under the influence of Roman Latin, having been officially banned in 80 BCE. It's thanks to his war service where he became a friend of Cato the Elder that he ended up in Rome, where he initially worked as a teacher and a translator of Greek plays. Twenty titles of these translations survive, Iphigenia at Aulus and Medea among them, and suggest he particularly focused on the works by Euripides. Only 420 lines of text have survived, but from these it's suggested that his translations were quite free and he was skilled at transferring the Greek rhymes and metre into Latin. This suggests his real strength was as a poet, and he's best known for his epic poetry. 600 lines of his epic of Roman history, Annalus, survive. Although this is only a fragment of the complete work, we can see a significant Greek influence in the way he introduced himself in the poem as Homer reincarnated and used the Homeric hexameter meter for the introduction at least. He also wrote plays on Roman subjects, Sabine Women and Scipio are mentioned. But these may have been recited poetry rather than plays, which is a subject we'll return to in the Roman period. Quintus Ennius died in 169 BCE and clearly knew that he had made his mark. He composed the following verse to be carved upon his bust post-mortem. Let no one weep for me or celebrate my funeral with mourning, for I still live as I pass to and fro through the mouths of men. He wasn't wrong. He's now regarded as the father of Roman poetry and is often acknowledged as an influence by his near contemporaries and later Roman poets. For other Roman playwrights from the period, we have little more than their names, although Lucius Accius is worth a quick mention. 
He was born in Umbria in 170 BCE and was best known as a poet, but his free translation of Aeschylus's Atreus is mentioned as being performed in 140 BCE. Fragments of other plays around the Trojan War myths are quoted by Cicero, who also mentions plays on Roman themes and generally holds Lucius Accius in high regard. In fact, Cicero recounts a meeting he had with Lucius Accius, despite being 64 years his junior, suggesting the playwright had a very long life. This seems to be the period when the Romans made a real connection with the Greek plays, or arguably reconnected with them. Whatever influence had been acquired before, it's likely that it was reinforced directly through translation of the plays from Greek to Latin. This quick review suggests that the plays originating from the Greek tradition, be that translation or adaptation, were the most common sort of play, but there was more homegrown offerings, and these were based on local Roman subjects. Using the term fabula crepidata for the translations of Greek origin and fabula paratexta for the stories of Roman origin. In terms of style, the latter was more likely to rely on spectacle and rhetorical speeches rather than high-flown poetry to engage their audience. For comedy, we can begin to see a picture of a mixture of styles progressing through the years. Something that starts not dissimilar to old Greek comedy, but which fairly quickly becomes tamed, and something closer to Greek new comedy, and both are heavily influenced by translation and adaptation of original Greek comedy. Libel laws were in place in the empire, and playwrights could be exiled or executed for any writings the state considered seditious or treasonable, so the toning down of satiric comedy is hardly surprising. In addition to recitation of epic poetry and dramatic tragedy and comedy, there were other forms of theatrical entertainment. One form that evolved in the last couple of hundred years of the pre-Christian era was pantomimi. The singular pantomimus means imitator of all. The form, which took on both comic and tragic stories, involved a single non-speaking performer acting out a story by the use of movement and mask. The pantomimi tended to encompass lofty themes and avoided farce and crude humour, and the fact that mask was used must have meant that it was a form that used posture and gesture through the entire body rather than just facial gesture. It's a form that survived the many changes as the empire progressed, appealing to several empires who lavished their wealth on the form and to the disparate Roman citizenry who didn't have to work their way through a foreign language to understand the performance. Its height was during the reign of the first emperor Augustus, 63 BCE to 14 CE. I've seen sources that date the introduction of pantomimi to 22 BCE, but others who say it was at its height earlier than this, and yet another who attributes its creation to Livius Andronicus, so by the second half of the 3rd century BCE. Clearly, they can't all be right, and there's some uncertainty over the dating. It seems to me that the golden age of pantomimi is well attested during the reign of Augustus and the later emperors, so I've gone with what I believe to be the majority scholarly view on this and that Livius Andronicus's place is more with epic poetry and the translations of Greek tragedy than with pantomimi. It's a timely reminder about the difficulty of interpretation of the evidence from these ancient times. At about the same time, the little brother of pantomimi was developed simply mimus, or mime, and although similar to pantomimi, in some ways it was its opposite. Mime tended towards the comic and the crude, and featured an unmasked single actor. 
mime seems to have developed from a form of interval entertainment where, during the breaks in the performance of a play, a solo performer would step forward of a curtain drawn across the stage and entertain the audience with wordless jokes. Crude gesture, face-pulling and innuendo seem to be the order of the day. Roman tastes were of a base kind, and the entertainments, even the somewhat loftier pantomime, never reached the heights of the high-flown ambition of their Greek predecessors. The disciplines of epic poetry and narration were the places for serious thought, and the theatre was being used mainly for those lighter entertainments. At its height, the mime form was very popular, with records from 175 BCE showing that the Spring Festival, which ran over several days, presented nothing but mime. Both forms included the use of music and elements of dance and acrobatics, and this may have been what encouraged women to be permitted as performers, or perhaps it was an inheritance directly from the Greek mime form, but either way, it was again the only form of drama where female performers were allowed. Some displays ended in nudity, a feature no doubt appreciated by the male part of the audience. In another distinction from the Greeks, both men and women attended the theatre performance. As with the progression of more and more sophisticated but temporary theatres, costuming also became steadily more and more sophisticated. The early travelling mime troupe probably had little more than everyday clothes they travelled in, but as the form became established in Rome, costume became standardised by character type, and in the later years became lavish when emperors and wealthy senators and citizens distributed their largesse in the direction of mime. Throughout this period, Almost constant expansion was the lifeblood of the Republic, but it also led to its demise. From about 134 BCE there was much political instability. The reasons for this are multiple and complex, keeping many scholars occupied for centuries, but for our purposes the key events are the ones that will be familiar to many of you. Julius Caesar, the most successful general of his day, but a man of thwarted political ambitions, took matters into his own hands when in 49 BCE he led the army from Gaul back to the city and took the fateful decision to cross the Rubicon and enter the city. It was an overt act of treason, and the point where, you'll remember, he quoted Menander about dies being cast. He took the city and became dictator for life and emperor in all but name. Technically, the Republic continued until his assassination in March 44 BCE. His death led to a period of rule by the Second Triumvirate, formed by his grandnephew Octavian and the generals and statesmen Mark Antony and Marcus Lepidus. The Triumvirate was eventually split by the competing rivalries of its three members, and following the discrediting and exile of Marcus Lepidus, Octavian took on Mark Antony, who was by then in Egypt with his lover Cleopatra. Their deaths after the defeat at the Battle of Actium resolved matters and Octavian took sole control of the empire, all of which we will return to when we get to a certain Elizabethan playwright looking back to antiquity and drawing parallels with his own times. The victorious Octavian changed his name to Augustus and became the first emperor of Rome in 27 BCE. With the empire, mime and pantomime became the predominant forms of theatre, with comedy and tragic plays becoming less popular. Augustus's descendants became emperor in their turn, a turn sometimes brought about by rivalries that turned murderous. Until his great-great-grandson Nero, yes, that Nero, died in 68 CE. So, a period of almost a hundred years where the Julio-Claudian dynasty ruled. It's from this period that we have the tragedies of Seneca that revived that particular form. 
For the history of theatre, we don't have to be too concerned about the further history of the empire, as the surviving plays we have come from just three playwrights working in the late Republican and early empire periods. I'll look at their life and works in the coming episodes, so for now, here's a brief word on each just to put them in context. Titus Maccius Plautus was the originator of the earliest Latin comedies to have survived to modern times. Born in 254 BCE, we have 20 plays in complete or near-complete form and knowledge of a further 35 by their titles and fragments. The plays contain many references to current events in the Empire at the time, where it was expanding fast. The influence of Greek, Old and New comedy is evident in his work, and his use of language is interesting in that he used a colloquial style rather than formal Latin. Many of his subjects and themes will be familiar to you, as his work was often plundered by later playwrights in the medieval and Elizabethan periods. Publius Terentius Afer, known to us as Terence, was an African slave born in 195 or 185 BCE. Brought to Rome, he was later freed when he impressed his master with his learning. We only have six plays by Terence, or comedies, which as far as we know were his complete output. He died young, at about 159 BCE. His plays are adaptations of Greek comedies, given in simple and direct Latin, but which have a refined elegance about them and are thought of as more sombre than Plautus. As such, they remained popular throughout the Middle Ages as tools of teaching Latin. Lucius Aeneas Seneca, known as Seneca the Younger or just Seneca, was born about 4 BCE in Cordoba, but raised and educated in Rome. He was a statesman, philosopher of the Stoic variety and author of eight tragedies. These are all based on Greek stories and themes, Medea, Agamemnon, Oedipus and the Trojan women among them, and take up fully the Greek way of displaying intense emotions with quite a grim overall tone. There are possibly two other works. One is based on part of the Heracles myth cycle and another about events of the reign of Emperor Nero. These are now thought to be Senecan in style, but not written by him, particularly the Roman play, as the events depicted in it are very close to his death in 65 CE. This has been a lot of dates to take in over the last couple of weeks, so I'm going to summarise here, and in the next episodes we will cover some aspects of this again in much more detail. So, to summarise. Although Rome was founded in 753 BCE, we don't get firm evidence of theatrical performance until 364 BCE. In the early part of that time, the Romans were ruled by kings, some of whom were Etruscan. The Republic was formed in 509 BCE after the Etruscans were expelled and Rome started its expansion, first into Italy and then beyond over the next couple of hundred years. The post-plague games in 364 BCE give us the first reports of a staged performance, albeit seemingly with music, singing and dancing, and without indication of a plot-driven narrative. Moving forward, there are indications of Greek influence on comic mimicry that developed in rural southern Italy that made its way to Rome and became a feature of the games held as part of the many established holidays, festivals held at the Circus Maximus and other venues in Rome. The comic interludes became expanded and moved out of the circus. 
Performance in raised open spaces became popular and comic performance was seen on the steps of a temple or a city square by a standing audience gathered around. In the 200s BCE, we know Livius Andronicus started translating Greek plays into Latin along with writing epic poetry. He was also an actor and held by later writers as being fundamental to the development of plays in Latin, albeit very closely modelled on the Greek. Over the next century or so, other playwrights produced translations and adaptations of Greek originals and also produced some homegrown drama based on Roman mythic tales. Theatre continued to be performed at temporary sites, sometimes with wooden but ornate backdrops created for performances. Despite the attempts of some prominent citizens to establish permanent theatres, at about 150 BCE it was not until 55 BCE that the first permanent theatre was allowed. Comedy was always the preference over tragedy, and in the late Republican era and through the establishment of the Empire, pantomime and mime became the dominant forms of theatre. Comic plays continued, with surviving examples written by Plautus in the second half of the 3rd century BCE and Terence at about a 100 years later. But tragedy was not completely lost, with Seneca giving the form a boost in the early years of the Empire. After the prominence of Seneca, there is little innovation in the Roman theatre. The building of the Colosseum in Rome in 80 CE is indicative of the dominance of the circus games. The reputation of actors and other entertainers sinks low, and although there continues to be some stage building, stages that included a covered area for the audience, these were mainly for mime and pantomime and some comic plays. The decline of the reputation of actors and other performers is a slow one, linked somewhat to the rise of Christianity and a moral framework that saw actors as morally lax and a bad influence on society. At about 200 CE, the church went as far as to excommunicate actors. This led to persecutions, and by 300 CE, the moves against theatre were having a significantly curtailing effect, but I'll leave that sad end to another time. So, as with the Greek theatre, we don't have a lot of examples to go on, but we still get the impression of a different sort of theatre from the Greek model. Clearly theatre never played quite the significant role in Roman life that it did with the Greeks. In Rome, the focus of the state was perhaps more on improving the citizens' life through architecture, civic amenities and the wealth brought about through the expansion of the empire. The games always remained the most popular form of entertainment, but theatre had its place, albeit purely for entertainment. Comedy comes to the fore, not only because we have more surviving examples of it, but because it genuinely does seem to have been the preference for the Roman theatre audience. Tragedy, it seems, never had the same popular appeal for the Romans. The Republic and the Empire may have spanned a thousand years, but we can now focus on to a shorter period of 300 years, where we have extant drama. Thankfully, we do have more direct and contemporary commentary on the plays from Roman critics and authors to help flesh out the way the plays worked for the Romans, much more than we had for the ancient Greek plays. Next time, I'm going to take a look at the theatre buildings in more detail and see how they developed over the years, how they were used and how they interacted with the city. Please join us on Twitter for more theatre-related stuff and at patreon.com if you would like access to episode transcripts and additional episodes. Thanks for your support there or at ko-fi.com, all of which helps me keep the garret warm as I research, write and record.
Details are now on the show notes for this episode. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any questions or concerns, in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp.com.